Whether or not you're into history, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you've come to the right place. Daniele Bolelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. If you have a problem with me giving thanks to some sponsors ahead of a show, feel free to use the fast forward button because there are quite a few folks I want to thank today. Let's start out with Blue Apron. This episode is brought to you by BlueApron.com. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. They deliver high quality ingredients and recipes right to your door for affordable prices. So check them out and find out for yourself if you could benefit from their services. That's, you know, one easy way to support History on Fire is to tick them up on their offer to try three free meals with free shipping by going to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Lately, I've been consuming Blue Apron meals like there's no tomorrow. I still have to run into a single recipe I didn't enjoy like crazy. So I'm not pushing products that I don't actually try myself and enjoy. But don't take my word for it. Check them out for yourself. You get three free meals by going to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. And you can find out if they work for you or not. Thank you also to Geek Nation Tours, which is a vacation company which creates tours focusing on geek culture, including conventions, movie locations and historical battlefields. This time, in October, they will be time-traveling to feudal Japan and the battlefields of Sekigahara. Join them as they watch Kendo, Kyudo, Yaido and sword-making demonstrations at the Seki Cutlery Festival. They'll visit the most famous Japanese medieval castles, hike through spectacular natural landscapes, and of course visit the Sekigahara Reenactment Festival, where you will see samurai walking the streets in full armor, and battling in commemoration of that battle from the 1600s. I'll put the link in the episode notes to their website, which is geeknationtours.com, but um, in case you don't have a pen handy, I'll have it ready in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com. I also like to give a shout-out to Alpha Dynamics. Um, this is a company that has sponsored uh, Savannah's our editor and artist and producer of History on Fire. They are sponsoring their MMA career, something that I deeply appreciate. So I want to give them a shout out. They are producers of uh, medicinal mushrooms. Medicinal mushrooms are probably the greatest superfood you have never heard of. They have been used just about forever in, uh, in Chinese medicine for energy boosting, for healing qualities, for all sorts of reasons. 
the what alpha dynamics what they do is they put together a couple of mushroom blends for different purposes but you may want to you know i really think if you want to check them out uh, their website is www.alphadynamicshealth.com uh, will also be inside the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com in case you didn't catch it right now but check them out see if that's something that may interest you they offer a money back guarantee if anybody's not satisfied with their products so check it out and of course last but not least my two enduring regular sponsors from day one Onnit and Datsusara if you are in the market for excellent supplements, workout gear and other goodies please go to www.onnit.com forward slash history where you'll receive an automatic discount and uh, of course if you need a computer bag, backpacks or any other kind of gear made with the finest hemp available please go to dsgear.com and use the code Daniele, my name, which is Daniel with an E at the end, at checkout for a discount. If you didn't catch any of the above websites, the links are in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com. As always, at the end of the episode, more on how to support the show and make sure it stays viable, plus future plans for upcoming podcasts, and all the other good stuff. But now... Without further ado, let's go set history on fire. Before we get going, a couple of important announcements. First one is that my friend Daryl Cooper from the Martyr Made podcast has decided to do a companion series, kind of paralleling what I'm doing with this one. I'm taking care of the narrative. I'm telling you the what happens from uh, the initial contacts all the way through the end of this tale. What Daryl does instead is produce a series of episodes that will explore more the mythology, religion, psychology of some of these events. And, uh, you know, he's an absolute master at podcasting. The series he has done so far for Martyr Made about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is just nothing short of amazing. So if you haven't checked it out, I suggest I suggest you do both the one that he already did about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but also some of these companion episodes. You know, if you decide that instead you like straight-up narratives and you don't care about psychology, mythology, religion, or to explore any of this further, of course, feel free to ignore it, but... I think I think there's something really amazing in his work. So if you want to check it out, I will put a link in the episode notes. The other thing I should mention is that I have released the special prequel episode to this series that is not available on iTunes, on Stitcher, or any of the other formats through which you may be downloading History on Fire episodes. It's only available on the historyonfirepodcast.com website, I've emailed it as an mp3, as a gift, to anyone who has donated so far in 2017. Uh, if you have donated in 2017 and you haven't received it, please let me know. But otherwise, it's available for sale for just a few bucks at uh, historyonfirepodcast.com. It's basically a standard-length episode about the tale that takes place in the same lands we are going to be discussing in this series, in uh, in the Valley of Mexico, 
about a hundred years before um, before the Spaniards show up, or rather, it begins about a hundred years before the Spaniards show up. It's a wild tale of political intrigue, revenge, uh, uh, all sort of crazy wild stories take place in it. I don't want to just give too many spoilers. It's a good one. So if you feel like checking it out, and that's a great way to support History on Fire. Having said all that, I'll now shut up with announcements and sponsors and things like that, and let's just get right into the episode. This is part two of a four-part series on the conquest of Mexico and the clash between the Spaniards and the Mexica Empire in the 1500s. There's, since this is a part two, there obviously is a part one, which we started the story with. There's also a prequel that's only available at historyonfirepodcast.com if you're interested, but I would definitely recommend at least starting with part one. When we left off last time, it was 1519, and the Spanish expedition under the leadership of Hernán Cortés had arrived on the southern coast of modern-day Mexico and made contact with local Maya people. This was the third Spanish expedition to arrive in the area in as many years. The first two had found out that Maya arrows were too sharp for their taste, and after finding themselves on the receiving end of too many of them, they decided to turn back. Even though both expeditions had turned out to be failures, basically, there's no other way of saying it, news of large civilizations in this part of the country had whetted the Spanish appetite for conquest. So Cortés was now the third Spaniard to lead an expedition, hoping to return covered in gold. In order to get to this point, he had 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 to play fast and loose with the law, because the governor of Cuba, who had initially authorized the expedition, had quickly changed his mind. Back in Cuba, one of Cortés' men had promptly murdered the governor's messengers, who was about to give the job to head the third expedition to someone else. And Cortés had departed in a hurry, in order to avoid having his commission revoked. This meant that the legal status of this expedition was at least questionable. Cortés didn't really care much. The way he saw it, he would either be successful and be forgiven for breaking the law because he would bring back enough gold to buy himself a pardon from the king, or he would die trying. So he could worry about the law later. It really didn't matter to him now. By the time he had arrived on the coast of Mexico, Lady Luck had already blessed him. He had run into a Spaniard named Jerónimo de Aguilar, had shipwrecked among the Maya eight years earlier. He had run into a Spaniard named Jerónimo de Aguilar, who had shipwrecked among the Maya eight years earlier. Why is this important? Because in those eight years Aguilar had learned to speak the Maya language, so he could translate, provide information, and be extremely useful when trying to negotiate with local nations. Aguilar had been ecstatic to be reunited with the Spaniards. There was, however, another Spaniard, who had survived the 1511 shipwreck, a certain Gonzalo Guerrero, who had reacted a little differently from Aguilar. Rather than being overjoyed at being rescued, he had shown up covered in tribal tattoos, married to a Maya woman, and with the three kids they had had together, basically saying, thanks but no thanks, 
to Aguilar's offer to join Cortes. Aguilar told Cortes that Guerrero was a sailor and that the local Maya very much respected his bravery. Much more damaging to Guerrero, Aguilar also said that he was that Guerrero was the one who had suggested to attack the expedition of Francisco Hernandez de Cordoba in the previous years, and that he had fought on the Maya side leading troops. To which Cortes had replied, I wish I could get my hands on him, for it will never do to leave him here. But Cortes' desire in this regard were going to be frustrated since he would never run into Guerrero. Having said all that, let's get to what does Cortes decide to do now. Um, at one point, Cortes had a bit of a problem because he lost one of his ships. During um, one of his ships had moved aside and they had quickly lost contact until eventually, going up and down the coast, they found it anchored by a small natural harbor and they found the men who were just there surviving on local products who are waiting to be reunited with the rest of the Spaniards. They even, even funnier still, they ran into one of the dogs that had been left behind by Grijalva during his expedition, and apparently the dog had been doing perfectly well, remaining wild in the air and hunting for food. But now was, much like Aguilar, the dog was fairly happy to be reunited with the Spaniards as well. Uh, along the, um, his movement on the coast, Cortes stopped among a group of Maya at a town called Potonchan, and he was trying very hard to avoid a fight. He told, you know, through Aguilar, he told the Maya that he would pay for the food, but the Maya were less than sold on Spanish promises. They were afraid that the Spaniards were going to attack, so they began evacuating women and kids during the night. Realizing that this probably meant a fight, the Spaniards brought more men from the ships onto the land. In the morning, the Maya gave them a little food and even gave them a little gold. But with that, they told them, OK, we have done everything we can for you. Now it's time for you to leave. Cortes did not see it that way. He's like, yeah, thanks for the food and gold, but I want more food and more gold, thank you. The Maya flat out told them, no, we don't want to trade. If you keep insisting, we're going to fight, and we have no more gold. This is not something that we have much of in this area. We just gave it to you to be nice, but let's be done. If you don't leave, we're going to kill you. Cortez complained about not being handed out more food, and said, look, just give, me, give us some more food and uh, I will trade you with some good advice. And the Maya laughed at him. They're like, we don't need good advice, thank you. We just, just go already. So at this point, Cortes read a statement demanding that the local population accept the supremacy of the King of Spain and basically putting themselves as in the position of uh, subjects of the King of Spain. Now, as a general rule, things rarely go well. When you're a guest, you ask to be fed and given gold. You refuse to leave when asked, and then proceed to read a statement saying that your hosts now have to accept being subject to a guy they never heard of from across the ocean. So, surprise, surprise, the Maya decide to attack. The Spaniards 
use their cannons to scare the Maya, since the Maya clearly have never faced anything like it. And while the Maya are a little intimidated by this, they will decide to battle it out anyway. This is when you wish we had the proverbial Dan Carlin time machine, allowing us to see the splendor of possibly something in the neighborhood of 40,000 Maya warriors covered in feathers with colorful battle standards against the Spanish army in full shining armor. From the Maya standpoint, this was like the equivalent of fighting Martians. They were literally fighting aliens. The natives were not even clear if the Spaniards were fully human or not. They were using these crazy weapons that nobody had ever seen. Cannons, guns, which were... I mean, to be honest, both the cannons and the guns were better for psychological effect than they were in terms of killing. Because back in the 1500s, they were not yet the most accurate thing in the world, and it took forever to reload and everything. The natives, however, had their own problems, because their own battle tactics were a bit weird. They Usually they aimed to wound and capture the enemy, more than outright kill them. And obviously wounding and capturing enemies is a lot harder than just straight up killing them. So they were in some way tying themselves up in trying to do this. Bernal Diaz, the main Spanish chronicler of this expedition, said that he was pretty impressed with Maya bravery, and he said like it looked like they wanted to, I quote, impale themselves on the points of the Castilian swords so as to lay their hands on their owners. All in all, about 20 Spaniards were wounded in this battle. But as the battle continued, a couple of the Spanish captains, Alvarado and Davila, they snuck behind the Maya through a path using the marshes. Uh, they went through the jungle to basically encircle the Maya. So they were able to kill some, capture some, and force others to run away. Uh, the Maya were basically caught by surprise by this uh, pincher move. Diaz gets wounded by an arrow to the thigh, which is kind of funny because during the course of this campaign, Diaz got wounded so many times, it's almost a joke. The guy was either very unlucky but also made of iron because he never dies despite taking all sorts of blows to all parts of his body. In any case, after the battle ends, it's not really over because neither side is fully defeated. But the Spaniards take over the deserted town, since the Maya had fled to the fields, and they sleep in the temple square. Cortes claimed the land in the name of the king, without mentioning at all Governor Velasquez from Cuba, which is something that upset Velasquez partisans quite a bit. During that night, there was a little bit of drama involving Melchior. Melchior, if you recall, was one of the Mayas who had been kidnapped by the Spaniards in, during a previous expedition. And they, were, they had been hoping to turn him into an interpreter by teaching him Spanish and everything. But So they brought him back, Cortes brought him back with him, but Melchior used these occasions to make his escape. So he off he went running. Luckily for the Spaniards, it was not as bad as it would have been in a different context, because now they had Aguilar, who could translate for them. So Cortés then approached the remaining Maya, 
And through Aguilar, he asks, why did they attack when he and the other Spaniards have been relatively friendly? And um, because, you know, there was another attack the following day. And they tell him that Melchior had told them to attack day and night since the Spaniards were few in numbers and the Spaniards could be killed like any other man. So, in an effort to patch things up, Cortés had sent some prisoners he had captured with a peace offer. But the Maya thought responded by... They say they would give some food and they would be at peace, but then they send no food. So what are the Spaniards to do? No, they start going into the Maya fields looking for food that they can harvest. There was in particular a man named Francisco Lugo who went with some soldiers to explore the country, but they were attacked. So they start retreating in good order. But, you know, There's yet another small-scale battle in this case. Uh, Pedro de Alvarado went out with a different group and they heard the noises of the Maya fighting with Lugo so he came from behind, surprised the Maya warriors and uh, helped Lugo out. All in all, only two Spaniards died during this quick fight. A few more will die of their wounds later but they managed to kill considerably more natives, probably about 15 or so, and capture a few. Cortés himself, in all these engagements, um, managed to distinguish himself as a great swordman. Everybody, even his enemies, acknowledged that the guy could handle a blade rather well. The next day, more battles, yet again. So another, this time, a full-scale battle takes place between Spaniards and Maya. In the words of Bernal Diaz, they rushed on us like mad dogs and completely surrounded us discharging such a rain of arrows, darts and stones upon us that more than 70 of our men were wounded at the first attack. And then Diaz goes on. Once they came to feel the edge of our swords, they gradually fell back, but only to shoot at us from greater safety. The Spaniards here were obviously at a monstrous numerical disadvantage, so they had to use every trick up their sleeves to even the odds. You know, sharp steel swords were great, no doubt. Armor, even better, to avoid getting killed too easily by my arrows. Cannons and guns, not bad either. But the major factor on their side in this battle were horses. Horses were animals that the Maya had never seen. You know, there, there used to be horses in the Americas well over 10,000 years earlier. They had gone extinct. And then, you know, they basically had never been domesticated. They had gone extinct. And so this was the first time that the Maya people would ever see a horse. This, incidentally, is also the first time in, his- in the history of humanity that we have a battle with horses in the Americas. That had not taken place yet. Cortes, during the course of this battle, Cortes and the few riders came up from behind the natives, surprising them. By now, the Maya were used to the guns, but they were really freaked out by the horses. They had no idea what to make of them. Some of them, as Bernal Diaz states, the Indians thought that at the time that the horse and the rider were one creature, for they had never seen a horse before. Uh, later, they once they figure out that this is not a centaur they are dealing with, and it's not the rider and the horse are two different beings, 
they still think that the Spaniards are riding some kind of giant deer in battle. Sort of like if you've seen the Hobbit trilogy, even the Elf King, how he rides that giant kind of... something like that. So, freaked out, like they couldn't get any more freaked out, the Maya decided to flee. Uh, they had wounded a lot of Spaniards, but they had also left a lot of dead on the field. Cortes say they probably killed about 220 Maya in this engagement. Uh, most by swords, some via cannon, muskets and crossbows. Now that they catch a break, one of the things that Bernal Diaz will report over and over that really gross me out is the fact that after battles where they have all their... everybody's wounded and they have to clean up the wounds, Diaz said that they have to, I quote, seal the wounds with fat from the corpse of an Indian that we had cut up for this purpose. That's a lovely image right there. You know, basically what he's saying is that they would cut out the fat from the body of a Maya person and then set the fat on fire and use it to cauterize their wounds. Really weird stuff. But, you know, I guess it's better than having an infected open wound in the jungle. So, yes, I can see how that would be more appealing. Besides the earthly advantages mentioned so far, the Spaniards also believed they had some supernatural help. During the battle, one soldier had a vision of St. James and St. Peter riding with them. And uh, Diaz himself, he said he, he couldn't see the saints, but rather than doubting that the saints were actually riding in battle with them, uh, Diaz started wondering, and maybe I wasn't able to see them because I'm an unworthy sinner, but the other soldiers who are better humans than I am, they were blessed with this vision. Uh, Diaz goes on to write, I say that all our deeds and victories were the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that in this battle there were so many Indians to every one of us, that the dust they made would have blinded us, had not God, of his unfailing mercy, come to our aid. So the Spaniards are big believers that God is on their side throughout this whole thing. How was Cortes able to succeed here, with the same Maya people with whom Cordoba had struggled so badly and failed? Well, for one, Cortes was better armed. He had more men, more crossbows, more muskets, more cannons. And another thing I haven't mentioned yet, he had a lot of dogs. Dogs? What do we use dogs for in this war? Well, the Spaniards at this time had dogs that were trained for war. They would cover them in armor. And there's even a whole book dedicated to this particular topic, to the use the Spaniards made of uh, their war dogs. It's called Dogs of the Conquest. And, you know, this was another psychological impact on the natives, because the natives in Mexico, they did have domesticated dogs, but their dogs were tiny. They were more like chihuahuas than anything else. You know, they were... Here instead, they were faced with some giant mastiffs covered in armor and trained to fight, hunt, and consume human flesh. Clearly there's something unsettling about fighting against an enemy that's trying to eat you. And the natives even often thought these were a strange kind of jaguar that the Spaniards had been able to domesticate and make them fight on their side. 
If all you had ever seen were chihuahuas, and you were faced with these enormous, angry war machines on four legs, you would think these were monsters straight out of your worst nightmares. And the Spaniards milked the psychological and practical impact of their war dogs for all they could. During this latest round of battle, the Spaniards had been able to capture some Maya captains, and they kind of lectured them, they told them, hey, the battle was your fault, but we're still gonna try to, we can still have peace, you know, we can still have some friendship. So they invited some of the Maya leaders to come to a meeting. The leaders came bringing food and asking permission to bury their dead so that they wouldn't be eaten by jaguars. Cortés, in the meantime, while they're having this meeting, he makes sure that some of his of his horses act really wild in order to kind of scare the Maya during negotiations. The Maya have really changed their tone by now because they realize that Cortes is not as easy to defeat as the previous Spaniards. So do, at this meeting, they brought Cortes some gold and 20 women to be divided among the captains. Because, you know, nothing says, uh, sorry about trying to kill you earlier. Let's make peace and be friends, like handing out to someone a few sex slaves. You know, when when people complain about millennials and modern generation, not sure if I agree, but certainly people don't apologize the way they used to. When people say sorry, they no longer hand out sex slaves. What's the word coming to? I don't get it. In any case, the Spaniards accepted the gift, but insisted on baptizing the women before they could rape them. Cortés appreciates the sex slaves, since had by now spent way too many weeks in the company of sweaty men, and Cortés on top of it was quite obsessed with women, but he also wanted to get Melchior back. Problem is that the Maya tell him that, well, the Maya try to kind of weasel their way out here. They say, oh, sorry, Melchior has fled. There's a, he noticed that the battle was going badly and he fled. Eventually, you know, as it turns out, the Maya didn't exactly tell the truth. As Cortés will find out later, what had actually happened was that they had sacrificed Melchior, since he had given them bad advice and the remaining Maya had not appreciated it. The Maya even went so far as to smash some of the statues of their gods because they hadn't helped them win against the Spaniards. Cortés told them he would not burn down the city, but they would have to stop making sacrifices and they would have to accept Jesus. Um, He also demanded, where's the gold? We want more of it. You know, we saw some, where is it? And the Maya said, look, we have no mines. Sorry about that. But Forte Inland, that's where you can find the gold. So the leaders of these defeated Maya towns offer their allegiance to Cortes, and Cortes responded by treating them fairly well and promising to protect them. Among the women I just mentioned, these 20 ladies who clearly were not in a particularly pleasant situation, they were they had been slaves among the Maya, they were now hand, you know, handed out as sex slaves to the Spaniards. So clearly this is pretty much as low as you know, as low as low gets right now, you know, in the context of Maya-Spanish interactions, they don't exactly have a high position here. But among the women was a lady 
who is going to become famous in Mexican history as La Malinche. And she's an extremely important character in our story. May not sound like she would be that important. She was, after all, only 19 or 20 years old at this time, and she was a slave. So it really doesn't get much lower than that in the social hierarchy. But she would end up being a key to the entire conquest. If you think I'm exaggerating, check out Bernal Diaz about her. Uh, He says, After our Lord God, it was she who caused New Spain, which is how the Spaniards would refer to Mexico. After our Lord God, it was she who caused New Spain to be won. So when a Catholic Spaniard puts you second only to God, that means quite something. She's probably one of the most important women in history, and yet very little is known about her. Diaz described her as good-looking, intelligent, and self-assured. Originally, Cortés had handed her out to one of his captains, Alfonso Hernández Porto Carrero, but later she ended up becoming Cortés' mistress. Uh, They would even have a son named Don Martin Cortés, but that's, that's coming up later. According to some sources, her name was Malinal, Um, that's debated and we're gonna see why in a second but we do know that the Spaniards baptized their Doña Marina uh, uh, possibly because of the similarity with their own name or maybe they just decided that was it author Camilla Townsend who did a monograph on her doesn't believe that she was called Malinal she thinks no one will ever know what her real name was and the Spaniards just called her Marina for the hell of it the natives would end up calling her Malinsin because they couldn't pronounce the R in Marina, so it became Malina and then the suffix Tsin, which uh, was a sign of respect. And then compounding these names being passed back and forth, Malinsin, the Spaniard heard it as Malinche, and so that's where the, the term uh, Malinche came from. To make this even more confusing, since Cortés would always speak to all native leaders he ever encountered through her, they began referring to him by the name Malinche as well. So, yeah, it gets kind of messy. The Mexica, who are going to be the people that Cortés will eventually want to meet, they spoke uh, Nahuatl, and they were probably related to Malinsin own people, but uh, because her people were also Nawa, but of a different kind. They were not Mexica. Her people lived in the south by the Atlantic coast, not far from Maya lands. Uh, however, she did speak the same language that the Mexica would speak. Story goes that her father was the lord of a village, and her mother was the ruler from a different one. But after the father died, the mom remarried, and she had a son with a different lord, and wanted, you know, she had remarried with this different lord, they had a kid, and they wanted this kid to inherit all of the villages. So, in an effort to make sure that this line of transition would take place, again the story goes that the mom sold Malinali to some slave traders, and told everyone that her daughter had died. In the words of Bernal Diaz, 
To avoid an impediment, they gave Dona Marina to some Indians from Chicalango, and this they did by night in order to be unobserved. They then spread the report that the child had died, and as the daughter of one of their Indian slaves happened to die at this time, they gave it out that this was their daughter. So in Diaz's accounts, the traders then sold um, Malinzin to some Maya merchants, who in turn sold her to the Maya lords of Potonchan, who had just been defeated by Cortes. Again, author Camilla Townsend saying that Diaz's story makes no sense, since a female child would have not stood in the way of a new child inheritance. She thinks that no one can really tell how she ended up being a slave, but she basically discounts Diaz's story as something made up. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, hard to tell. What we do know is that Malintzin spoke Maya and Nahuatl, and demonstrating incredible intelligence, she learned Spanish very quickly, so that at this point Aguilar was really no longer needed. She became the source for all communications, who had tremendous influence. Again, Diaz says, I've made a point of telling this story, because without Doña Marina, we could, we could not have understood the language of New Spain and Mexico. Several years later, in 1523, Marina married a certain Juan Jaramillo and went to preach Christianity to the leaders around what where original hometown had been. And again, this is a story that Diaz tells, and who knows how much of this is true or not, but he tells that uh, her mother and the half-brother were afraid that she would have them killed. Her stepfather was already dead, but clearly the mom who had sold her into slavery, now she had to deal with her daughter, who was this super powerful woman by then, and she was afraid of how she reacted. But supposedly she forgave them, saying that they didn't know what they were doing at the time, and all was done. Diaz compared this story to the biblical tale of Joseph in Egypt, and she said, you know, so the question is, I guess the question I have about Malintzin is that why was she so enthusiastic about helping the Spaniards at every step of the way? You know, there's kind of a tradition in Mexico of seeing her as, a, as, as treasonous, as somebody who betrayed their own people. Other, there's kind of a whole new scholarship that argued that's really the wrong way of looking at it. Now, we'll never really know what her motivations were. She didn't write a single line there. We don't have any of her words preserved, so we have no idea what her motivations were. The best we can do is speculate. You know, some people see it as revenge for having been enslaved, so not so much, so she clearly didn't have much loyalty to any native society that had put her in slavery, and she saw the Spaniards as the best chance to improve her lot in life. Others argue that she wanted to take the Mexica down, that she had a, some kind of grievance with the Mexica Empire. There are many, many theories, but of course, you can't get inside her head, so her motivations are destined to remain a mystery. With considerable relief for the Maya, the expedition then moved on to the land of the Totonacs. There they were, this other native nation along the coast, received the Spaniards well, gave Cortes food, copper, and silver. Uh, 
they set up dances with the Spaniards, they had, you know, a fairly good time, but the pleasantries were interrupted by a rather momentous event. The arrival of one of the Mexica Emperor Moctezuma's ambassadors, a guy named, depending on which sources, is either named Teodile, Tendile, something like that. And I'm probably mispronouncing him anyway. This was the first meeting that the Spaniards were having with the Mexica. By now, Cortes had understood that the Mexica were the dominant power in the country and that everyone was scared of them. The ambassador told Cortes that Moctezuma had heard of their arrival and he had heard about the battle at Potonchan. So the Spaniards had managed to attract the attention of the top dogs in the country. So Cortes was very careful about how he was going to play his hand. The Mexica, for their part, could not have played their hand any worse. In a really misguided moment, they handed out to Cortes jewels and gold, which was a really bad idea. Cortes gave back a bunch of colored beads, and he asked them to, he said he wanted to see Moctezuma. The ambassador responded saying, you have only just arrived and already you you asked to speak with our prince. In other words, you're impressive, but not that impressive. Relax here a little bit. He told them, he told the Spaniards to enjoy their gifts and they would talk more later. In the meantime, the ambassador had brought painters and artists. Why did he do that? To make this was the time before everybody had a camera in their cell phone or anybody had any camera period so the best thing to he wanted his artists to make realistic portraits of all the captains of the ships of the horses of Malincin of Aguilar the dogs anything that the Spaniards had with them so that they could bring the drawings back to Moctezuma so that he could see you know this was second best to being able to see for himself The Mexica ambassador told his men to build huts for all the Spaniards and he left behind 2,000 servants who would work for them and help take care of them. Which on one hand is is very generous a gift, on the other hand obviously among the 2,000 quote-unquote servants, many of them were spies who were to keep an eye on what the Spaniards were doing. The Spaniards, for their part, put on a mock show of combat with Alvarado leading horses galloping on the beach. They also shot cannons and all the Mexica dove to the ground in fear. So, you know, the Spaniards were putting on their own little theater act to try to intimidate the Mexica with their power. The ambassador asked Cortes if he could have one of the Spanish metal helmets so that he could bring it back to Moctezuma. Never want to miss a chance, and I mean, you almost have to smile at this, because, but yeah, never want to miss a chance, Cortes told that, he said, sure, you can have the helmet, but, you know, me and my men, we have a sickness that can only be cured with gold, so to make sure that our heart is good, please bring the helmet back full of gold dust, and the ambassador said, oh, no problem, we Mexica have plenty of gold, Hey, talk about a bad move. That's like bleeding in front of a shark. 
The Mexica idea was that they would give them a bunch of gold in hope that by giving them what they wanted, the Spaniards would then leave. They did not realize that in doing so, they would only stimulate their appetite. In the meantime, back in the Mexica capital of Tenochtitlan, which was in the central part of the Valley of Mexico, all the events we've been talking about so far were taking place along the southern coast of Mexico. Emperor Moctezuma received the messengers that had been sent in a hurry by his ambassador. As part of the ritual, the messengers, before giving the news to Moctezuma, were sprinkled with sacrificial blood from two victims who had just been slaughtered for this purpose. They told Moctezuma that the Spaniards covered their bodies with clothes, they had white skin, they had beards, their clothing often was made of iron, that they could shoot these strange ball that could make trees fall they were referring to a cannonball and Moctezuma was scared by all of these was extra scared by the story of them riding giant deer into battle and some of the sources say that his soul was sickened his heart anguished he basically became super depressed upon hearing this account kept wandering around the palace saying what will happen to us and crying if these accounts are true and there are definitely some historians who question them but if if it's if it's very possible they are true this is clearly not what good leadership look like you know franklin Delano roosevelt famous inaugural speech you know when he said so first of all let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Remember that speech? Well, Moctezuma's response was basically the exact opposite of this. His fear was passed on to the rest of the people who in turn got scared. They're like, if if the top dog, if Moctezuma is scared, maybe there are there's good reason to be scared. They didn't really know what to make of the Spaniards. Some people believed that they were conquerors intent on pillaging. The Maya and the Mexica messengers seemed to feel this way. Maybe Guerrero told him this. That's highly possible. The Totonacs started spreading rumors that the Spaniards were immortals or were there some kind of gods. There was also the possibility they were old gods returning. There's a whole tale that some people buy about the belief that some Mexica had that the Span- Cortes and the Spaniards were the return of their god Quetzalcoatl. The story of Quetzalcoatl is very interesting. But before I get started, let me warn you that there's a very high chance all I'm about to say may have been made up after the conquest and not being an original Mexica belief at all. I'll explain in a few minutes, but for now let's just mention some aspects of the Quetzalcoatl story. The tale is that he created humans by going into the underworld to find the bones of humans from a previous world, dropping some blood on them, so that the bones started growing flesh and became human beings. So his story is kind of part Prometheus, you know, bringing science and art to humanity, 
empowered Jesus with this idea that he would return one day. Quetzalcoatl had his share of enemies. Enemies who were more than thrilled to trick him thanks to a fermented drink. Personally, I'm a happy drunk who wants to hug everyone. You know, if I drink a little, I get in this mood where I just feel happy and I feel very... I don't know, last thing I want to do is get mad or angry or any of that. Quetzalcoatl, not so much. The story goes that he was tricked by another god, Tezcalipoca, into getting drunk, having sex with a celibate priestess, in some alternate version of the story. The celibate priestess is actually Quetzalcoatl's sister, and generally being obnoxious. By the time he sobered up, he was super ashamed of his behavior and chose to leave the country, promising to return one day. As I mentioned, it's really hard to tell if the Quetzalcoatl story is pre- or post-conquest, since most of the native sources, most of their books, because they did have a written language, most of them were destroyed. According to some, the year one read which, according to the Mexica cyclical calendar, took place every 52 years, one read was the year when Quetzalcoatl would eventually return. So the Mexica would be on the lookout for Quetzalcoatl every 52 years. Well, the 52nd year in this cycle happened to be 1519, which is when Cortés arrived. Some descriptions even suggest that Quetzalcoatl was described as having a beard, and or white skin. And even stranger, considering the Mesoamerican contest, is that Quetzalcoatl was against human sacrifice. Other historians argue all of this stuff was made up later. For example, they point to the fact that there isn't a single pre-conquest source indicating that Quetzalcoatl had any problem with sacrifices. The people who support the Quetzalcoatl theory believe that Moctezuma was more inclined to believe this tale, while others in his families were not so convinced and they believed that the Spaniards were just human enemies. Again, one of the ideas is that Moctezuma felt that there was nothing he could do to oppose these strangers who may be gods and that they would eventually conquer the empire. Again, we don't know if this is true. What we do know is that Moctezuma seemed very intimidated by the Spaniards, even when many other Mexica were not. So, I mean, some people, there's a whole debate regarding the role of Moctezuma in this story. Some people cast him in more negative light than others. I tend to be on the negative light side. I see just about every one of his actions as a failure in leadership. And so one of the theories that the whole belief that the Spaniards were God theory is really an attempt at explaining why Moctezuma was such a bad leader at this juncture in history. Among those against the Quetzalcoatl as a returning God theory is author Camilla Townsend, who said that the natives clearly did not take the Spaniards to be gods, and that this was a story made up years later. Uh, possibly, you know, this was not mentioned in Cortes' letters. It may have been made up by the Mexica themselves to kind of come up with an explanation for why they lost. Um, some people think that maybe there was a mixing of uh, history, like the story of some Nahua hero 
who had uh, was very important in the culture but had left and they were expecting him to come back some people think there's a mix of mythology who knows nobody really know here this is obviously destined to remain a mystery because there is no contemporary Mexica record of any of this. The later versions, the ones where we do get to find out the whole Quetzalcoatl story, such as the codex created by some of the converted Indians in the post-conquest, these would go around asking questions of the descendants of Mexica priests. And some people believe that the answer that the Mexica priest gave were elaborate post-conquest efforts to justify themselves, since their parents were the ones who had been supposed to figure out, you know, to see the trouble coming ahead of time and find a solution, and they hadn't. So the idea that they would place all this emphasis on the omens, on the inevitability of the return of the god... Or, or at the very least, the idea that Moctezuma believed this stuff, and that's why he acted the way he acted, these were really efforts for, by them to deflect the blame. It's also possible that the Quetzalcoatl myth was changed for the purpose of syncretism. Um, something that Catholic priests may have not been against. Why would they try to mix elements of pre conquest religion with Catholicism, basically to make it easier to convert people. You could use previous religions as stepping stones toward Catholicism. For example, creating a precedent of a native god against human sacrifices would help win the natives away from their traditional religious practices by saying, look, we're not telling you to change, we're telling you to focus on this side of your heritage, which may have never existed and may have just made it up. The syncretism was also popular with the natives. You know, at a time when the post-conquest scenario, when they would have little room for agency and everything in their lives being forcibly changed, this was a way for them to keep continuity with the past. So it's entirely possible that this old tale I told you is just somebody shooting an arrow and painting a target around it after the fact. But let's then step away from this sometimes frustrating debates and let's just go back to the narratives of what we do know. Moctezuma supposedly asked his men to discover if the Spaniards were gods or not. He told this ambassador, who in the meantime had come back to Tenochtitlan, to head back to speak with the Spaniards again. And this is the part that I like the most. He tells him that if the Spaniards by any chance want to eat him, he should let them. And, you know, don't worry, I'll take care of your family if you end up eaten by the Spaniards, but if that's what they ask of you, by all means, offer up your body. There are 10,000 thoughts floating in my head about this, but for once I choose to shut up. I'm not even going to add my own interpretation or thoughts on this. I'll just let you make what you will of this story without my influence. The Mexican ambassador, probably more than a bit nervous, visited... Cortez on his boats. They offered ten slaves to be sacrificed, but Cortez refused it. More than the slave part, Cortez was mad about the fact that there weren't enough gifts, so he arrested the ambassadors and guns fired close to them to scare them. And scared they did become, you know, scared by the noise, they just dove for the ground. 
And granted, yes, they were terrorized, but at least Cortez didn't eat them, so that was some there was somewhat of an upside in this. Cortez told them Cortez, you get the feeling that he he was having fun with these guys. He told them that he had heard of Mexica bravery and skill in war. So he said, Okay, tomorrow morning we're gonna have a duel to see how good you are. The ambassadors try to protest. They say, Our emperor Moctezuma didn't send us for this. Cortez said, No, it must be as I say. I wish to marvel at your prowess, for it is known that you are very powerful and valiant. Now let us eat, and in the morning we shall fight. At this point, probably chuckling away from the ambassador's eyes, he let them return to shore, and these guys promptly fled toward Tenochtitlan. They wanted no part of a duel with Cortes, and really didn't know what to make of any of this. So back at the capital, the discussion was underway regarding what do we do about these guys. Moctezuma's brother, Quitlahuac, had some rather sensible advice. He said, My advice is not to allow into your house someone who will put you out of it. It seemed to make sense. Kakamatsin, the king of Texcoco and nephew of Moctezuma, also said, My advice is that if you do not admit the embassy of a great lord such as the king of Spain appears to be, it is a low thing, since princes have the duty to hear the ambassadors of others. If they come dishonestly, you have in your court brave captains who can defend us. So the decision they reached was an odd compromise. They would give the Spaniards anything they wanted, but they would not let them come over to Tenochtitlan, and they would not let them visit Moctezuma. So the ambassador... Moctezuma's ambassador went back to see Cortes a few days later, on May 1st. He brought elaborate presents, including some giant wheels made of gold and silver. He offered the Spaniards food that had been sprinkled with the blood from sacrificial victims. And to the consternation of the Mexica, the Spaniards were grossed out. They just spat on the floor and shook their heads. The Mexica really didn't know what to make of it. I mean, you go out of your way to sacrifice people in their honor so that you can sprinkle some blood on your guests' food, and they don't appreciate it even a little bit? The Spaniards are clearly very weird people. The message, though, that the ambassador passed on was that Moctezuma was sending more offerings and jewels, but he didn't want to meet with them. Cortes returned some presents for Moctezuma, but he said he had to meet him, or his king would be angry. Cortes further told the Mexica should stop human sacrifices and become Christians, because that's what the king of Spain commanded. Now, none of this, of course, was true, because the king knew nothing of Cortes' expedition or any of this, but, you know, the Mexica didn't need to know that. In the meantime... Some of the Totonacs visited Cortes, and they mentioned how they really were not so hot about being under the Mexica yoke. By now we have a third visit with the Mexica ambassador, with yet even more gifts, but with the message becoming firmer and firmer to just get out and leave the country. And Cortes said, just, no, that's not going to happen, so good luck with that. 
under the veneer of gifts and pleasantries, things were quickly becoming tense. The ambassador took back the 2,000 servants he had loaned to the Spaniards and stopped providing food for them because Moctezuma had told him to cut all contacts. You know, Moctezuma regularly sacrificed, made sacrifices to the gods Tezcatlipoca and Huitzilopochtli, and they told him not to allow the Spaniards to preach their message. Or at least, you know, that's what Moctezuma believed. Cortés sent Alvarado to look for food. And Alvarado, during his, his exploration, you know, now that they no longer had the Mexica providing food, Alvarado went out, found some abandoned villages and bodies that had been sacrificed. I quote from Bernal Diaz. He saw in the temples the bodies of men and boys who had been sacrificed. The walls and altars all splashed with blood, and the victims' hearts laid out before the idols. He also found the stones on which the sacrifices had been made, and the flint with which their breasts had been opened to tear out their hearts. They saw also bodies with no arms and no legs, that some local natives told them that the arms and legs had been eaten. And Diaz goes on to say, I will say no more about these sacrifices, since we found them in every town we came to. So now that we close this gross parenthesis, let's go back to Cortes talks with some other natives, the Totonacs, which, if you recall just a minute ago, they were kind of complaining about being under the Mexica yoke. In Diaz's words, as this conversation went on, Cortes learned that Moctezuma had opponents and enemies which greatly delighted him. Some Spaniards felt that they had done enough and they wanted to return to Cuba. And now we get some major insight into Cortés' character and into his strategic mind. He promptly pretended that he could create a settlement, but he said, you know, I agree, yeah, we should go back to Cuba. You know, maybe we should create a settlement here for future exploration, but yes, I'm with you, we should go back to Cuba. Now, why would he do this? Because now what you have is that those who wanted to actually stay and continue the expedition, people like Alvarado, Avila, and a few others, would protest. And Cortés would have a chance to pretend to be conflicted. When Vasquez men, the ones who wanted to go back to Cuba, started protesting, you know, and Cortes then sided with them, he basically forced these own guys, Alvarado, Avila, and so on, to raise up a big stench about it so that Cortes could act like he was being forced into this. In Diaz's words, Cortes gave in, although he pretended to need much begging. It was a case of, press me harder, as the say goes, but I'm very willing. This kind of reminds me of a story. It's, it's pretty funny. There's, uh, I was once, I had the pleasure of having breakfast with uh, Ben Harper. If you guys are by any chance not familiar, Ben Harper is an amazing musician. He's a god of music. And um, in this one occasion, Ben Harper was telling me about a tour in which he went with some other musician who, 
yeah, it's probably a wise idea if I don't mention the name of this other musician because I don't know if that's cool to tell the story or not in public, but we'll keep it anonymous. But Ben Harper was saying that this other musician was an absolute rock god, right? He's one of the most famous and celebrated musicians of all time. You know, they were touring together and in one occasion they at this one venue they gave Ben Harper the big giant room and they gave the other guy a much smaller one. And so the second he saw that this was happening, Ben said, no, 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 come on, you take the big room, there's no way, you know, you are the top star, you take it and I'll go in the smaller one. And the other guy started saying, no, 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 you take it. And as he was saying, no, 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 you take it, was already walking into the big room. Kind of the no, no, no was just a big scene. Cortez sort of reminds me of this here. You know, he's pretending to needing to be convinced by his partisans to continue the expedition. He was just putting on a show for Vasquez man. Did I say Vasquez man? I meant Velasquez, of course. Velasquez was the governor of Cuba. I may have said Vasquez also a minute ago or so. Scratch that. Velasquez is the name. In any case, that was part of Cortez playing this game, this psychological game, how he didn't want to push the expedition, but he was being forced by some of his men to do so. He sent one of Velasquez's closest friends, Montejo, and along with a guy who Cortes trusted very much to look for land suitable for a settlement. And while they were gone, Cortes went on to create a town councilship, had himself elected captain general of the territories until the king would provide someone else, and he said he would agree to create a city called the Villa Rica de la Veracruz. Cortés said that he had come here just to find Grijalva, but now that he saw what, I quote, a fine land Mexico was, and how both our Lord God and the King would be so well pleased, and the royal taxes and rents so much enhanced, if there were to be a settlement. So again, he's trying to find a justification for doing something that technically was not really in demand that he had received from the governor of Cuba, but at some later date, Cortes was a little more blunt, and he stated, If laws have to be broken in order to reign, let them be broken. Montejo returned and found that the expedition had turned itself into a settlement. Cortes, had, to avoid any trouble, had made sure to nominate Montejo as a chief magistrate, as a bribe, and also gave him a bunch of money. He basically bribed him along with many of Velasquez's men. As Diaz said, he made good and loyal friends of them, all with gold, the great peacemaker. Which is kind of funny, but it tells you how Cortes was handling business. At this point, they went up the coast to the site that had been found by Montejo for a town, but they stopped along the way at at uh, this place called uh, Chempoalan, a Totonac town. This was June 1519. They were well received there, and the natives gave them food. Their king sent a messenger apologizing for not visiting personally, 
But I love his justification. His justification for not showing up in person was that he was too fat to move. I love that. The Spaniards entered the town and they were greeted by all the natives. By now, the chief managed to climb out of bed and prop by some people. I kind of picture the Goblin King from The Hobbit here. You know, the idea that this guy is too fat to move. Bizarre, but apparently could move, managed to meet them. According to some sources, he ruled over 200,000 people. Other sources put the numbers much lower at just a few tens of thousands. In either case, you know, a substantial settlement. The Spaniards almost never used this actual name, possibly because it was monstrously difficult to pronounce. Let me see if I can manage to get something close to it. Tlacuchcalcatl? Maybe. There's nobody from the Totonacs who can correct me right now, so it's all good. The Spaniards, just to avoid dealing with that name, they decided to just call him the Fat Chief, and that was that. Cortes told him that he would repay in services everything he was receiving. And he asked him, what do you need? What can I do for you? I'll join the Spaniards in calling him the Fat Chief. The Fat Chief complained of Moctezuma's greed, and mention how other towns like Tlaxcala, Huechotzinco, Texcoco, and there was even a rebel in the allied Mexica town of Texcoco who hated them, that lots of people resented the Mexica rule. And he even suggested that Cortes would lead all of these disaffected native nations against the Mexica. This was the first time that Cortes began to think that he could do more than just settle a town and get some goals, but perhaps he could take on the empire. So the fat chief played a crucial role in this story. But just when they seemed to be getting along famously, Cortes released the five slaves who were destined for sacrifice in town. And the fat chief did not take it well. He told him, you will ruin me and all this kingdom if you rob me of those slaves. Our infuriated gods will send locusts to devour our harvests, hail to beat them down, drought to burn them, and torrential rain to swamp them if we offer no more sacrifices. Cortes considered what to do. You know, he could have made a principal stance and kept the freed sacrificial victims, but doing so, he may have antagonized his main friend in the country, because clearly the Fed chief was beginning to, in Cortes' mind, he could play a very important role in the months to come. So what to do, what to do? In a case of picking your battles, Cortes considered the fate of the guys he just rescued and decided it was just not worth it. Sorry guys, but off to the sacrificial stone you go. So he returned the slaves to avoid angering his main friend in the land. The fat chief appreciated and gave him 400 people to carry all the baggage that the Spaniards were carrying with them. And, you know, everybody was happy. Well, everybody except the five guys who ended up getting their heart cut off. Cortes at this point moved up the coast and the fat chief told him that other Totonax towns would welcome him there. In these new Totonac towns, Cortes heard even more complaints about the Mexica coming in and taking 
their kids as slaves or sacrificial victims. He was told that the Mexica would sometime show up in the village, grab people for slavery and sacrifice. Mexica tax collectors would sometimes rape the wives and daughters of the Totonacs. And with perfect timing, as this story was being told, five Mexica representatives arrived at this town demanding tributes. The Totonacs started shaking in fear and began making preparations to receive them. The Mexica arrived and they didn't look at anyone. They seemed really arrogant and sure of themselves. Um, the Mexica actually yelled at the fat chief and some of the other leaders for having entertained the Spaniards since they were told not to do so by Montezuma. So they say, okay, since you messed up, you need to give us 20 girls and boys to make up for your mistakes. And Cortes now decide to take a gamble that demonstrates that for all his faults, and there are many faults in Cortes' personality, the man had nerves of steel. He told the local lord who was about to pay this tribute that Mexica were demanding, he said, don't pay them. Instead, seize them, tie them up, until we can notify Moctezuma of the abuse, of what happened. Because we don't believe, you know, I don't want to believe that this is an order that came from Moctezuma. Let me play it. And the chiefs are like, are you crazy? You know, we can't do that. The guys, they're going to crush us. The Mexica are not people you want to mess with. But Cortes insisted, and Cortes was not a guy you wanted to mess with either. So the Totonacs are kind of stuck in between. And he, Cortes, got them to do what he wanted. He also ordered them in general to just stop paying tribute and to tell all their allies to do the same. So with this move, Cortes was just basically a just challenge the head of an empire with millions of people in it. The Totonacs were blown away by the Spaniards' bravery, and they began to think that maybe they were more than human beings. At the very least, the Totonacs agreed, okay, sure, we'll capture these guys, we put but can we at least kill them so that no word of these would get out? But Cortes said, no, no, I'll, I, want to, I want to keep them as prisoners. Because Cortes was not done with his crazy strategic move. He told this man, choose the two prisoners that seem to you the most intelligent and lose them. Then bring them to my quarters, but do not let any of the village Indians see what you're doing. Cortes again putting on his usual show. These two confused Mexica were like, why are our subjects arresting us? What's going on? And why are the Spaniards freeing us? What's happening? Cortes asked him, why were you arrested? You know, pretending that he didn't know anything about it. And in Diaz's words, Cortes replied that he knew nothing about this and was very sorry. He gave them food, he acted friendly, and he told them that he would argue with the Totonac chiefs over the arrest and that he had freed the Mexica. He told them, I just freed you because of my personal affection for Moctezuma and I don't want to see any of his servants mistreated. So, you know, in this version of the story, he'll do what he can to serve the other representatives and in the meantime, he wants to send a message of friendship to Moctezuma. So Cortes brought these two guys by boat miles away so that they could make their escape. 
Then, back in this elaborate act, Cortez went back to act as if he was really mad that the two had escaped, and chained the other three and said, you guys yelling at the Totonacs, how did you mess up? How did you let them escape? Uh, I'm going to look over the other three, because you guys are clearly not doing a good job. When the Totonac lord in town found out that they had escaped, he was really scared of Moctezuma's reaction. He was in a what-can-we-do panic moment, and Cortez smiled and said, don't worry, I will defend you. So at this point, as the Totonacs are scared, because Cortez has forced them to do something that basically makes them challenge the Mexica Empire, and then he engineered the two guys escaping, so they would tell Moctezuma that the Totonacs had done this. Why would he do this? Because at this point, the Totonacs have no way to turn back. Now they have to accept the Spanish offer to protect them because otherwise the Mexica are about to come and squash them without protection. So all the Totonacs really scared, they took this oath of obedience to the Spanish king. And, you know, Cortes could not have played his hand any better. This was just masterful strategic move. Moctezuma was just getting ready for war against the Totonacs, but he heard about Cortes helping the Mexica tax collector, so he was a little confused about what to do. He sent some gold to Cortes, but he also complained, saying that the Totonacs did this because they felt protected by the Spaniards. Cortes sent a message back complaining about the fact that the previous Mexica ambassador had left them during the night and they were left, so they had to go to the Totonacs because they had no more food. But he also added, but I'm sure that this was not done at your orders, that you didn't order that stupid ambassador not to bring us food anymore. You can tell that what Cortez's favorite game is. He loves playing good cop, bad cop. He always liked to put on this act to get what he wants. He also added that, you know, problem is now the Totonacs had sworn allegiance to Spain and clearly they can't serve two masters. But, you know, I'll come to visit you and we'll figure things out in person. Is this guy an evil genius or what? I mean, Cortez is just... Say what you will, and there are a lot of bad stuff that one can say about the man... He was really brilliant in other ways. The Mexica ambassador now arrived at the place where Cortes was beginning to create his town. They brought gold to cure the Spaniards of their sickness, as they had told in the past. At this place, Cortes had asked more lords to stop paying tribute. And, you know, by now everybody among the Totonacs were like, okay, do whatever you want, we'll follow you. Um, Moctezuma look afraid, that's why he keeps sending the gold, and we have never seen Moctezuma being afraid of anybody. So, you know, we'll follow what you have to do. But Cortes was not the only sneaky one in the land. The fat chief was about to show him that he could play that game too. So he sent a message to Cortes saying the Mexica have a garrison about 20 miles away and they were organizing an army to punish the Totonac rebellion. So Cortes has to think what to do about this. In the meantime, he's dealing with the fact that some of Velasquez's men still want to return to Cuba. Cortes first gave them permission, but then he had some of his 
partisans say that this was treason and that Velasquez's men should be executed. Cortes stepped in and said, okay, okay, we're not going to execute them. These are fellow Spaniards. I would never do such a thing. But, okay, you guys are right. We can't leave. Uh, so nobody goes back to Cuba. So again, this good cop, bad cops game. He clearly did not want to allow them to return to Cuba in the first place. But rather than saying so and making them angry, he told them yes. He had some of his other men act as if not only they shouldn't be allowed to return to Cuba, but we should execute them for treason so that he could jump in and protect them, saying, no, we shouldn't execute them, but yes, you're right, nobody should live. I love the way the guy played the game. So by now, Cortez decide to follow through with the Totonac demand, and some 2,000 warriors among the Totonacs go with the Spaniards to confront what supposedly is this Mexica garrison. But by the time they enter this town and they attack it, the local population tell Cortes that the Mexica have left long ago and there are no Mexica in town. And that the only reason why the inhabitants of the other Totonax town have said that there were Mexica is because they are enemies and they are trying to use the Spanish power to, to attack us. So clearly what the Totonacs had done was to trick the Spaniards and make them attack another rival tribe by pretending that they were Mexica vassals oppressing them. Which in the most generous version is stretching the truth quite dramatically, and in any other version is just a flat-out lie. So it's pretty obvious that the Totonacs probably didn't believe that the Spaniards were gods. They were powerful, yes, they were brave, they had amazing technology, not really gods, because nobody tries to trick their own gods. Cortes was livid at having been beat at his own game, so he ordered the Totonacs to stop and return the items they had been looting. He told them that they all deserve execution for having lied just to rob their neighbors, and then he kind of forced them to make peace with the men from this town they had just attacked. To make the point also to his own man that he wasn't kidding, he saw a soldier who had stolen a couple of chickens from his new allies, from the inhabitants of this town that Cortes wanted to make peace with. So he had him executed for stealing food from allied people. He had him strung up, you know, supposedly he was to be hanged, but typically, you know, when during a hanging the person gets dropped so that their neck breaks before they choke, Instead, he just had him strung up without the drop so that he would slowly choke. And why did he do that? Well, at this point, Pedro Alvarado interceded and cut the rope, saying, come on, the man learned his lesson, we don't need to kill him. Given Cortez's tendency to play good cop, bad cop, it's likely that he and Alvarado said this all show up together as an example, making the point, we're not kidding, I can order the death of any of you if you don't obey to me. But then telling Alvarado, make sure you save this guy. We don't want to really kill him. You know, we don't need to go that far. The Totonacs, perhaps realizing that they had really pulled the fast one and they just got caught doing it, decided to try to make a move to get back on Cortez's good graces. So they figure, they saw they had figured out the man, which is as long as we hand him women, he'll be happy. So they gave him. Uh, eight daughters, in this case not sex slaves, but uh, daughters of some of the main leaders in town in marriage, 
so that they would build an alliance with the Spaniards. Cortes said, hmm, uh, you know, Cortes never met a woman that he wasn't interested in, so he definitely appreciated, but say, as usual, first we have to baptize them and they have to become Christians, and then we can talk about this. That sounds interesting. However, he was still mad, not only because of the trick that the Totonacs had just pulled on him, but also there were these were the parts where his strict Catholic heritage was coming in more so. He was pretty upset that in town there were young teenage boys who would dress up as girls and would be selling sex. That really rubbed him the wrong way. Also making him mad was the fact that day in and day out, on a fairly regular basis, the Totonacs were holding human sacrifices. And, you know, the Totonacs said, look, our gods are good, but this is what they need. They need human blood, so can you please back off and let us do our thing? Cortes had clearly only postponed his religious clash with the Totonacs, but now the time had arrived. So at this point, he ordered his men to destroy the statue of the gods in uh, the in one of the in the town of the fat chief on Chempolan. The Todnites didn't take it well. They were really mad and they were getting ready to fight. So this alliance between Totonacs and Spaniards looked like it could fracture right now. Cortes gave orders to his soldiers that their first move should be to kill the fat chief if his warriors were to attack. The fat chief wisely told his warriors to stand down and that you know he did not want to have a fight. I think what happened is that realizing that battle with the Spaniards was a bad idea because being abandoned in the face of Moctezuma's wrath was, uh, uh, would be too bad, would be something that really was not a wise course of action. So they decide not to antagonize the Spaniard, and they say, look, do what you want. Uh, you want to break our statues, we are just going to turn away. We don't want to witness it. It's too painful for us. So the Spaniards went ahead, destroyed the statue of the Totonac gods, and all the population just started crying. In the words of Bernal Diaz, when the chiefs and the people saw their idols broken and lying on the ground, they set up a miserable howl, covered their faces, and begged forgiveness of the idols that they were unable to protect them. The Spaniards now continue on the same uh, track, and they put an image of the Virgin Mary inside the temple, and they also place a cross there. They get a few of the Totonac priests to cut their hair, and, you know, they briefly instruct them of how to take care of the images of the Virgin Mary and the cross, which in itself is kind of weird, because think about it, the Totonac priests, they were not baptized until the day before they had been celebrating human sacrifices, and now they were in charge of taking care of the Virgin in the temple. Rather bizarre. You know, from the Totonac standpoint, they didn't mind adding on one or two or three more gods to their pantheon, but they wanted to kind of incorporate somebody like the Virgin Mary with their gods. The natives, in this case, and in many cases to follow, were, were okay with the idea of adding Christian images to their altars. What they were not okay with 
with the idea of getting rid of their own gods altogether. In their, own, in their mind, there was always room for one more deity. And they could not understand the Spanish insistence that you had to follow one. And in order to follow, you know, to add the god that the Spaniards worship, you had to get rid of all their previous ones. The notion that there was room only for one just made no sense to them. Their approach was kind of like, you know, we get we get your lady who pops out babies without having sex, and she's fine with us. You know, she can hang out with our gods who eat hearts to have the energy to keep the universe into existence. How's that a bad plan? But coexistence and multiculturalism only work as long as all parties involved support the idea. They do not work when one of the parties involved supports an exclusive worldview that seeks to be the only one and want to squash all alternatives. You know, you, you can have as many different ideas as you want, but they all have to agree on at least one thing, that it's okay to have different ideas. If one of them doesn't, as the exclusive approach to religion that the Spaniards brought with them, definitely fit this bill. He was not, he was not okay with being uh, sitting at the same table with these other religious traditions. In any case, now that the religious squabble was over, a couple of things happened. One is that about 60 more Spaniards arrived by ship to join. You know, they had heard about Cortes and decided they want to join. They bring some bad news that Velasquez, the governor of Cuba in the meantime, had received the license to explore this territory, to explore Yucatan and make territorial claims for himself. So Cortes realizes that the legal situation is a bit tense. So he grabbed a couple of his guys, specifically Alonso Hernandez Puerto Carrero, and was um, Malincin's first, wasn't a husband really, was just the the man that Malincin had been handed to at first. And another one, Francisco de Monteo. Uh, Cortes sent these two guys to go back to Spain to try to have a meeting with the king. Um, in order to make sure that the meeting would go well, he gave them a bunch of gold. You know, the idea was, you know, hand him the gold, and after that, ask him to look into how Velasquez has mismanaged his position as governor, and that they try to convince him that the king should give uh, Cortes the commission, since he had already done so much good for Spain in Yucatan. Um, he also sent four or five uh, natives who had been saved from being sacrificial victims, kind of as curiosities for the king. The friends of Velázquez in this expedition clearly didn't like what they were hearing, and they wanted to return to Cuba. Cortés said, sure, no problem. But then he said, sorry, but our town council is not giving anyone permission to leave. So, you know, I would let you, but the town council doesn't let me, so there's that. Some of them see through Cortés' little game, and so they plan to steal a ship so that they can go to Velázquez and try to block Cortés' representatives to the king. But one of the guys were part of this plot. As a last minute, he gets cold feet at the last minute, and he actually goes out and warns Cortes of this attempt at mutiny. 
So Cortés and these guys go out and arrest the main ringleader. And one of them in particular, a certain Escudero. Escudero, you know, he and Cortés were not on good terms. Cortés said Escudero had been sent by Velázquez to arrest Cortés multiple times in the past. So Cortés was not a huge fan of Escudero. Now when he finds out that Escudero is one of the chief ringleaders of this plot against him, Cortés has a chance for vengeance. The court was made up with all of Cortés' friends. Order Escudero and a certain Juan Sermeno to be hanged. Uh, order a few other members to be lashed and uh, Pilot was going to join into this plot to have part of his foot cut off. Um, so those two are hanged and the others are punished in various ways. Now many of them, the ones who are spared, actually they are so thankful after they got scared that they would have their head chopped off or they would be hanged that they actually became some of Cortez's biggest supporters in the years to in in the months to come rather. In one of those symbolic gestures that scream climactic scene in a movie, Cortez ordered most of his ships, not all of them, but most of them, to be sailed onto the sand, you know, and basically make them not usable to return to Cuba anymore, in order to create a succeed or die vibe and squash any talk of returning to Cuba. He then gave his Concord land or die speech, where basically he would say, you know, look, we are here in the service of God, and we have really just two options at this point. There's no turning back. In the words of Bernal Diaz, he says, he added that we could look for no help or assistance except from God. For now we had no ships in which to return to Cuba. Therefore we must rely on our own good swords and stout hearts. The legend about this episode is that Cortés had burned the ships, which is visually super cool, it's just not true. There was no fire involved, but it's still, you know, the concept is the same. He made the ships not usable for oceanic travel. He justifies his action to the king in a letter by saying, thinking that if I left the ships there, they would make off with them and leave me practically alone, which would have prevented the great service which has been done to God and to your majesty in this land, I found the means under the pretense that the ships were no longer navigable to pile them up on the shore. Cortés at this point announced that they were ready to march toward the Mexica capital, toward Tenochtitlan. He offered one ship to anyone, to anyone who was... Uh, wimp enough to return to Cuba rather than go for the expedition and at this point nobody took him on it they all agreed to follow him so he Cortés left his friend uh, Juan de Escalante with about 150 men uh, he left him as governor of Veracruz this town that they had settled and then everybody else is going to begin the march toward Tenochtitlan there's roughly about little over 300 Spaniards and over a thousand between natives who had come from Cuba with the Spaniards, you know, enslaved natives who had come from Cuba, and some of the Totonacs who decided to join them. Tenochtitlan was about 250 miles away. 
Moctezuma received the news that the Spaniards are on the move, and he does what he always does. He gets really depressed. Now, before he could head to Tenochtitlan, after he had just taken a few steps toward that direction, Cortes had to turn around because he had heard news that there were some men who had been sent by the governor of Jamaica who were arriving close to Veracruz. So Cortes made his return to the coast, managed to capture a few of those men and recruit them, while the others decided to turn back and return to Jamaica. So Cortes now back on the march, rejoined his army, on a really tough road through the mountains. It was so cool, you know, the temperature was, it was really warm in the lowlands among the Maya, but when you start going up the mountains, a whole lot of the enslaved Cuban Indians died of cold. They stopped along the way in uh, in a town that belonged to some of, to a people subject to the Mexica. And, you know, they were received well there, but the Spaniards were, it's kind of weird to be received well in a town where, you know, they seem to be polite and stuff, but as you walk around, you see these racks in front of the temple filled with human skulls. Uh, Cortes asked the leader of the town if he was a subject to Montezuma. And the chief seemed puzzled at the question. He said, I thought everyone in the world is a vassal of Moctezuma. What are you talking about? You know, Cortes told him, yeah, not quite. You know, you should actually stop making human sacrifices and soon enough Moctezuma is going to be a subject to the king of Spain. He also asked for some gold, which is, you know, you never go wrong asking for some gold. However, the chief refused because, you know, he said, I can't give you anything unless I receive a direct order from Moctezuma. He figured, you know, again, he figures, he figures out Cortes' taste rather quickly, and to pacify him for not having given him any gold, he hands him some women. So what ended up happening at this point is that the Cortes sent a few of the allied Indians toward the town of Tlaxcala as messengers who should carry this message to ask the Tlaxcalans to unite with him against the Mexica. Tlaxcala, if you recall from, well, I discussed them in the in the prologue to the whole series, the one that's up for sale at historyonfirepodcast.com. I discussed them a little bit earlier and in episode one. Tlaxcala was the one city in the region that was not subject to the Mexica. They were not the only one, but they were they were the main rivals to the Mexica, and they were fiercely protective of their independence. So Cortes reaches out to them, figuring, okay, you guys don't like the Mexica, we don't like the Mexica, we have something in common here. But after a few days, there's no sign of the messengers that Cortes has sent. So Cortes decides, okay, I need to go see, find out for myself. You know, I don't know what happened, so let's go see. In Tlaxcala, the, the total population is estimated to have been somewhere in the 150 to 100,000, something like that. He was um, independent, but you know was part of a federation of small towns, of which Tlaxcala was the biggest one. And they were f- quite proud of their heritage to have been the main uh, holdouts against the more numerous Mexica. Moctezuma at some point said that he would, he you know, he could conquer Tlaxcala any time. He just let them stay in this semi-free status 
to keep the Mexica trained for war, so that they could have, you know, training wars for, give the training grounds for their warriors. Now, maybe that's how the relationship was years before, but by 1519, they just, the Mexica just couldn't conquer the Tlaxcalans. That's where it was. So in the meantime, in Tlaxcala, um, all the nobles got together into an assembly to decide how to respond to the Spaniards. A few of them wanted to join the Spaniards, wanted to accept their offer and join with them against the Mexica. A few others, including one of the key characters in the following events, um, a man by the name of Xicotencatl, sometimes referred to as Xiconteca, that's assuming that I'm pronouncing it right, which is a complete guess, but in any case, he was against it. He did not want to join with the Spaniards. Overall, the Tlaxcalans were a little scared by the fact that they saw many members of nations, such as the Totonacs, were paying tribute to the Mexica, marching along with the Spaniards. So they got a little suspicious and thought, this is a trap, you know, maybe we need to prepare to fight because these guys are not to be trusted. Um, so they decided to let, to send out an army of a group from a related people, the Otomis. The, uh, the Otomis were, they are not technically Tlaxcalans, but they are an allied population. And um, they figure, you guys can attack the Spaniards first. And, you know, if you win, great. And if you don't, we can always blame it on the Otomis later and try to not take the blame ourselves. So let's send them out first and see what happens. So it's, by now it's September, barely six months from the initial Spanish landing in the country. The Spaniards are on their way to Tlaxcala and they run into a few Otomi scouts who don't seem to be in a very friendly mood. Some Spanish horsemen chase them, but the scouts don't seem to be as impressed with Spanish horses as other natives have been. Um, they actually managed to turn around and kill two of the horsemen with obsidian swords. This small group of possibly 30 Otomi scouts who had drawn the horsemen into this chase now revealed that they basically led them into an ambush, that close by there were some 3,000 more warriors ready to attack. So on this day, they do have a fight. It's not the biggest fight ever. It's not a huge battle. Um, the Spaniards are a bit taken aback to have to find themselves in a battle with a population that they thought would be friendly. They ran into Tlaxcalan warriors painted for war, they hear all the war cries, and that get the Spaniards a bit nervous. they not nervous enough that they freeze, you know, they still manage to kill quite a few of their opponents, but they also suffer some losses. In particular, there were a few horses that were killed, which is something that Cortés tried to hide, you know, he, he had the horses buried so that they would remain mysterious. In the words of Bernal Diaz, we slept near a stream and we dressed our wounds with the fat of a stout Indian whom we had killed and cut open, for we had no oil. That same story about using the fat of dead natives to cauterize some wounds that we mentioned earlier. The, the native side had some tactical problems, because one of the things they did is that really only the front ranks fought 
So their bigger numbers really didn't always help because you would have a lot of people in the back, but the number of people actually engaging the Spaniards at any one time was never that high. So that was probably not a good idea, but that's how they they were used to fighting. Their obsidian weapons were not bad at all. You know, obsidian was super sharp. You know, one blow to the head of a Spaniard could just clean that head right off. However, the problem with obsidian is that unless it hit the intended target, and if instead it made contact with Spanish armor or swords, it would shatter. So that's clearly not very good. Cortés is livid. You know, he's mad that he had to fight. He was hoping that he could get the Tlaxcalans on his side without having to fight. And now instead his fight, he's stuck in a giant fight against the people who he thought would be their willing allies. He ran into a couple of the messengers he had sent. And they returned, they rejoined the Spanish lines saying that the Tlaxcalans had captured them. And they had planned to sacrifice them, but they had managed to escape. They also told them that the ones that they just fought were Otomi, not the Tlaxcalans proper. But Cortes is not in a good mood now. He is really upset. So that same night, he goes out with his men and they attack some five or six small villages, about a hundred people each. Cortes basically goes on a pillage campaign in the villages, killing a whole lot of people, grabbing priests and throwing off the temples, mutilating everybody he doesn't kill. Um, Possibly this was done to create terror by killing a bunch of civilians, creating a climate of terror that would make people fear the Spaniards. In any case, the next day, a real Tlaxcalan army shows up. Some estimates suggest maybe it was even up to 40,000 people. Nobody really knows. It was a lot of people, for sure. But during this battle, the Tlaxcalans managed to cut a head of a horse with their obsidian swords. So that gives you an idea of how sharp they were. Despite that, this is a tough, inconclusive battle. Neither side is able to score a full victory. The horsemen were the most important for the Spaniards. Um, another advantage was the fact that with so many natives all around you, it was basically impossible to miss a shot. Every time you took a shot, you hit a target. Shikotenga uh, or Shikotenkatl, the, the head of the Tlaxcalan army. After the first day of fighting, he got into some squabbles with some of the other captains who, had, due to jealousy, had refused to come to help him. So, you know, the Tlaxcalan army is not exactly perfectly united. The Tlaxcalans then took away their dead so as not to let the Spaniards know how many of theirs have been killed. Our good old Bernal Diaz, as you may imagine, he was wounded because he gets wounded every time. He got somebody threw a rock at his head and then he took an arrow to the thigh. But as usual, our men of steel seemed to just prod along without caring. Most of the Spaniards were wounded, but overall they fought very well. It was, however, getting really cold in that part of the country, and the Spaniards were not really dressed for the occasion, so they were suffering quite a bit from the chill at night. So maybe just to keep warm, well, not just for that, but yet another reason, Cortés decided to go again in more pillaging expedition through the countryside. 
attacking every one of the small, poorly defended villages. He, he tried his time to actually take some prisoners and not kill everybody and try to be actually nice to them. So he sent some of them saying that, you know, go back to Tlaxcala and say that we want peace. However, if they keep us fighting, we're going to kill you all. So after that first battle, the Tlaxcalans were willing to hear it out, but they were, they were still, the war faction was still strong. They were not really willing to capitulate. The next day, which was September 5th, 1519, in the words of Bernal Diaz, we were 400, of whom many were sick and wounded, and we stood in the middle of a plain, six miles long, and perhaps as broad, swarming with Indian warriors. Moreover, we knew that they had come determined to leave none of us alive, except those who were to be sacrificed to their idols. So in light of that, you can imagine how nervous most of the Spaniards were, when you are in this valley where pretty much there are thousands of people who either want to kill you outright, or capture you alive just so that they can later sacrifice you and take out your heart. Either scenario would make people, any normal human being, a bit tense. Another thing I should mention, you heard in this quote Bernal Diaz speaking of 400 of us. Earlier I mentioned 300. These numbers are always somewhat approximative. Nobody knows for sure the exact ones, but give or take, somewhere between 300 and 400 Spaniards were involved in this. Overall, things were not looking super rosy for them. Several soldiers were pretty close to mutiny. Their supplies were dwindling rather quickly. So... You know, despite the fact that they hadn't done poorly on the battlefields, the Spaniards were not in the best possible shape. It's at this moment that some Mexica arrived onto the scene, bringing more gifts, saying that Emperor Moctezuma was very happy that Cortes was beating the Tlaxcalans, and uh, he even, at least this is what the Spaniards say, who knows if it's true, that he even offered to pay tribute to Spain. However, the one thing that he was insistent on was do not come to Tenochtitlan. You know, I'll send you all the wealth you want, just don't come home. Because, you know, the roads are bad and it's a bad time of the year and I don't want the Spaniards to suffer. This kind of reminds me, there's a scene from the iconic, what was it, 1980s, I think, the, the iconic movie The Blues Brothers, where John Belushi goes through this speech where he's just making every excuse in the book in front of the woman whom he abandoned on the altar, or was supposed to marry. He says, I ran out of gas, I got a flat tire, I didn't have change for cab fare, I lost my tax at the cleaners, I locked my keys in the car, an old friend came in from out of town, someone stole my car, there was an earthquake, a terrible flood, locusts, it wasn't my fault, I swear to God. That's kind of what Moctezuma is doing here. You know, he's making up all these pretty obvious and somewhat pathetic excuses to keep the Spaniards away from Tenochtitlan. But I don't know who he's fooling, because they are so obviously just ridiculous that, of course, Cortes is not going to take them seriously. In the meantime, however, he would take seriously the fact that the Tlaxcalans got together for another assembly. And the rivalry 
There were multiple rivalries going on. There was the peace faction and the war faction clashing, but even among the war faction, there was a rivalry between the top military leaders who were accusing each other of mistakes in battle. Specifically, the guy we referred to a little bit ago, Shikoten Kattel, and another man with a rather interesting name, Chichimekatekl, or something close to that. While they are trying to figure out what's going on, some of the, I don't know how to refer to them, shamans, wizards, I, they use the word wizard in um, Bernal Diaz, they are, probably are talking about shamanic specialists, but some of them suggest that the Spaniards may be vulnerable at night, so Chicot and Cattle decide to make a night attack. However, the Spaniards hear the noise of the approaching army and they get ready and they manage to kill about 20 Tlaxcalan warriors and send the other ones fleeing. The Tlaxcalans remember about the shamans who gave them advice for a night attack, and so they promptly sacrifice them, because it turns out giving bad advice in Mesoamerica this time meant that off to the sacrificial stone you go. In these battles with the Tlaxcalans, the Spaniards lost about 45 men, which is really not a small number when you consider that this was well over 10% of their total force. Uh, Diaz tells us that um, Malincin, or Doña Marina, whoever you want to refer to her, was extremely brave, even under terrible circumstances. But as usual, he doesn't go into details about her. He just throws out this one quick line and that's it. So we don't really know what that meant. Cortes is getting tired. So he sends one more message to the Tlaxcalans. says, either you make peace with us or your city and your country will be destroyed. Both sides, both the Tlaxcalan and the Spaniards, have seen their morale erode steadily over the last few days. This is a case that, if it was a video game, is whose morale bar will run out faster. And they are both running really low already. So, most of the Tlaxcalans by now are ready to agree to peace. But Shikotenkotl does not want to, and he wants to continue fighting. So, in one occasion, the Spaniards attack a village, but they don't hurt anybody there. So these guys are let to go free to spread the news that the Spaniards are good people, that they, you know, Spaniards were trying to send both messages. Some villages that would wipe everybody out to send a message that the Spaniards were tough and not to be taken lightly. And then in other villages, they would be really nice to give the message, hey, they, they can also be merciful. As usual, pretty much at every step of the way, some of Velasquez's men wanted to go back. They say, they are done, this is not working so well, how about we just go back to Cuba? Cortes yelled at them, saying, look, I share the same risk with all of you, plus God is on our side, and what the whole enterprise is done in the name of God. He also appealed to a more practical reason, saying, look, our Indian allies, if we abandon them now, if we go back, they are going to fight us. So... We have to fight either way. We might as well fight going forward. And with that, the bar of Spanish morale was raised a little bit. As both sides are trying to figure out what to do, there's a temporary truce, but 
Shikotenga or Shikotenkatl send a few spies into Cortez camp. He sent these people supposedly under the guise of bringing food to the Spaniards while they are in this temporary truce. But the Totonacs warned Cortes that these guys who supposedly were bringing food, they have their eyes looking a little in too many directions. They seem to be gathering information and spying. So Cortes arrested them and they, probably after some good old Spanish torture, they confess that the Tlaxcalans are planning a night attack. Uh, as Cortes wrote to the king regarding what he did after hearing this information, I took all fifty and cut off their hands and sent them to tell their chief that by day or by night, or whenever they chose to come, they would see who we were. Um, so here you go, Cortes cut off the hands of some spies, ears and noses of others, tied them around their necks, and then send them back to Tlaxcala with the message that, you know, it's unworthy of brave soldiers to stoop to such uh, little tricks. You know, if you want to do battle, we're ready for you, day or night. Shikotenga takes up Cortez's challenge, but during a night battle, the Spaniards are able to beat down the Tlaxcalan army. In the following days, just to reinforce the message, Cortes keep going up and down the country, destroying more villages. And by now, the fact that they are not able to crush the Spaniards make most of the Tlaxcalans decide that it's not worth it, that they should sue for peace. So the message that they give them is, you know, sorry about that, but we honestly believe that you are with Moctezuma, that this was a trap. We understand now that you're not, so maybe we can be friends after all. In writing a letter to the king, Cortes wrote down the following words. He said, They would rather be your highness vassals than see their houses destroyed and their wives and children killed. Now, call me crazy, but that's the same choice I would make. You know, do you want to be the King of Spain vassal, or do you want to have everyone you love killed and your house destroyed? I think being the King of Spain vassal is not so bad after all. Chicotenga went to Cortes to basically give him a speech, saying, look, we fought you because we love freedom, but you have made your case, so we'll be on your side now. Cortes turns around and says, look, I wanted to be friends all along, and I was kind of mad that you guys started fighting me for no reason. You know, I wanted to get an alliance going without having to fight. Instead, this idea that we had to have all these brutal battles weakening us before we even reached the Mexica doesn't make me too happy. But, okay, what's done, it's done. Let's make peace now. We can, I'll pardon you and be done with it. The idea that the Tlaxcalans and the Spaniards would now join forces made perfect sense. The Tlaxcalans, after all, had been in a long war with the Mexica, and they began to see in the Spaniards their one chance to win. And yet, I can't but wonder about the guys who just had the Spaniards chop their arms off. How do you just get over it from one day to the next? You know, the same people who a day earlier had held you down while you are screaming and cut off one of your limbs are the people that now you are supposed to fraternize with? Uh, I wish we had some of their words telling us what was going through their heads.
but since we don't, I'll be left wondering. In the meantime, if things were a bit concerning for the Mexica at the beginning of this episode, they have definitely turned much worse by the end. Just a few days earlier, it had looked like Tlaxcalans and Spaniards may wipe each other out and do the job for the Mexica. And now instead an alliance of Tlaxcala and, Sp- and the Spaniards was happening. Things could not have turned any worse. The Spanish cannons and horses could break enemy lines relatively easy, and then Tlaxcalans had the numbers in their infantry to be able to exploit this. Um, now that they had stopped killing each other, Tlaxcalans and Spaniards had their eyes set on Tenochtitlan. But no one had any illusions that the future would be easy. Awaiting them was the greatest empire in all of Central and North America. An empire that had been built not on diplomatic finesse, not on their reputation for high culture, but on one thing and one thing only, and that was the Mexica's brutal effectiveness in warfare. So the Mexica would now prepare for whatever the Tlaxcalans and the Spaniards could dish out. And the encounter of these forces, the Mexica on one side, and Tlaxcalans and Spaniards on the other, is about to take place on the next episode of History on Fire. to extend a big thank you to blueapron.com for choosing to sponsor one episode a month for the rest of the year. In the last few weeks I've been eating Blue Apron meals like they are going out of style. In the past I cooked some of them and can testify to the ease of the process, but lately its uh, producer and editor of History on Fire, Savannah M, has been in charge of the cooking and it has been so good. Every Every single time. I mean, I can't... It's kind of weird to be telling you how good the food I just had is uh, if you don't get to taste it. So just take my word for it or don't take my word for it and try it out for yourself. Every Blue Apron delivery results in me jumping up and down in a less than dignified manner. But I don't care because I like the food that much. For less than $10 per person, per meal, um, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-full recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. They have a very wide variety in their menus, 
and they allow for possibilities to customize it to your dietetic preference. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. You love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Thank you to Geek Nation Tours. This time they will be traveling this October to feudal Japan and the battlefields of Sekigahara. Join them as they watch Kendo, Kyudo, Yaido and sword-making demonstration at the Seki Cutlery Festival. They'll visit a whole bunch of castles, uh, Matsumoto, Ogaki, Nakahama, uh, Nijo Castle, a whole, even the Imeji Castle, which is the most famous in all of Japan. They will hike the Magome Tsumago Trail, which is the very trail that samurai used in ancient Japan. They will also visit the Ryonji, the famous stone garden, They will see natural wonders like the Hirayu Waterfall and Kamikochi Valley, and even bathe in private and public onsen. The biggest draw of the tour, however, is a visit to the Sekigahara Renactment Festival, where you will see samurai walking the streets in full armor and battling in commemoration of the battle from the 1600s. Actually, not even the 1600s, the very year 1600. All information about this particular tour and the other tours that they offer will be found in the episode notes. I'll provide a link to their website, which is geeknationtours.com, but you know, like all the other links, it can be found at historyonfirepodcast.com. And of course, a big thank you to Onnit and Datsusara, the two companies who have been in my corner from day one. I use all their products on a daily basis. I just finished using Alpha Brain, which is kind of the flagship supplement that Onnit uses it. I just gave some to my dad who was visiting um, from Italy. And he was... Um, I didn't tell him much about Onnit beforehand, and he was a believer after trying Alpha Brain because he said that he kind of made jet lag go away, kept him awake, kept him feeling mentally energized so check that out and also if supplements are not your thing they have a lot of other things from exercise equipment to clothing to special foods if you go to onnit.com forward slash history you'll automatically receive a 10% discount and that's Usara I mean I every single day I'm wearing some in this very moment I'm wearing a Datsusara hoodie that's made of hemp just as it's made of hemp, there are backpacks that I used uh, um, right now I'm in Big Bear, California. So as we were coming back up the mountain, all our gear was inside Datsusara backpacks. I, I really love their stuff. Check them out. You won't regret it. Their website is dsgear.com and you can use the code Daniele at checkout for a discount. As I mentioned in the beginning... Big shout out to alphadynamicshealth.com for sponsoring Savannah's MMA career. Uh, they produce medicinal mushrooms that, you know, they are a big part in Chinese medicine. They are also used as kind of tonic herbs. They are used as uh, uh, kind of energy booster, overall uh, health indu- because of their health-inducing properties. 
Check them out, see what you think at alphadynamicshealth.com. Um, I really appreciate what they have done. They offer a 100% money back guarantee in case you guys don't like their stuff. So just give it a quick check out to their website and see what you think. Also, as usual, I want to thank everybody who uses the uh, History on Fire Amazon link. It's much appreciated. I'm going to use this Amazon moment to give you a quick overview of some of the key sources that I've used for this series. This is not clearly all-inclusive by any stretch of the imagination, but these were some of the main texts that I've used. So in case you decide you want to read more and you want to buy some of these, it would be great if you use our Amazon link, or for that matter if you use it for anything else as well. But here go the books. We have uh, Conquest by Hugh Thomas, Conquistador, Hernán Cortés, King Moctezuma and the Last Stand of the Aztecs, I forgot the author, um, Mexico and the Spanish Conquest by Ross Hessig, Malintzin Choices by Camilla Townsend, the primary source that we keep going back to over and over again, The Conquest of New Spain by Bernal Díaz del Castillo. There's a Penguin edition that's really good. The Seven Meats of the Spanish Conquest by Matthew Restal. Uh, we have uh, Cortez's The Letters from Mexico as primary sources that are really good. There's a book called The Dogs of the Conquest that I've referred to during this episode. Uh, also in terms of primary sources now from the native side, there's a classic one, it's called The Broken Spears. There's also an anthology that uses some of the material from The Broken Spears, but also from other ones as well, called Victors and Vanquished. Um, and there's a lot more. This is just, again, just, just some of the first one that come to mind that I've used for, to research for this series. But yes, all of you use the Amazon link. I thank you very, very much. Having said all that, I see you again. Well, see you is probably not the right word, but you know what I mean. We will connect again in a month when episode 3 of this four-part series will be released. Thank you very much for listening. <music>